All right, you have a Bible, I want to turn to Nehemiah. How about Nahum? Nahum chapter 1, verse 9 through 15 is our text. And the message is entitled, The Sure Judgment. The prophet Nahum has revealed that God has qualified to judge Nineveh, as we've seen, the capital of Assyria. Being perfect in holiness and being perfect in justice. He makes no mistakes. And so the prophet Nahum now reveals the absolute certainty of the execution of God's judgment over Assyria, which is going to be characterized by three truths here in verse 9 through 15. Let me read our text. Chapter 1, 9 through 15. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they should be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off your yoke from you the burst, and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images, the molded images. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tithings, who proclaims peace of Judah. Keep your pointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And so Nahum reveals the absolute certainty of the execution of God's judgment over Assyria, which is characterized by three things. First, we have the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of Assyria's clever plans in verse 9 through 11. Clever plans. Secondly, the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of Assyria's confident strength in verse 12 through 13. And thirdly, the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of Assyria's controlling existence, verse 14 and 15. The futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of Assyria's clever plans comes first. Man is so vain, he's so self-assured, he's so arrogant at times. The prophet Nahum here in verse 9 revealed the condemnation of Nineveh due to her pride. The expression is one of irony. Listen, what do you conspire against the Lord Yahweh? In other words, what do you think and what are you devising in plans or devices that you can strategize a way to be victorious over God, to defeat him, to null and void his judgments, his decree of doom. It's irony. It's, it's ludicrous. And yet, God knows the heart of man. The Assyrians were very fierce, clever warlike people, as you know. They instill fear in all, mutilating, maiming, torturing, slaughtering, without any concern of mercy or compassion. Entire cities would commit mass suicide. They built their dirt mounds outside the wall, getting higher as they scaled the walls and came in and just destroyed everybody. Notice the expression is one of insanity, if you look at it logically. The one coming against them was Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He's always a defender of his people. Um, you choose to defend yourself, he'll let you. If you let him defend you, he'll do a better job. 
Yahweh was not a man subject to the limitations of humans, so he could not be outsmarted by Assyria. Yahweh was not fearful of them. See, one of the things in Scripture, God says, you, you, you have thought me to be as a man. I'm not. And man in today's world has brought God down to the human level if they believe in any kind of God or they have just explained him away. Nahum notices mocking the Assyrians, declaring that nothing they devise or plan would avail or avert their destruction and final end. As a nation, race, and culture, have you ever met an Assyrian? Now, you've met a Syrian, but not an Assyrian. <laughs> Remember, the Assyrians had a long history. Nineveh being founded by Nimrod, as we saw in Genesis 10, 11. Nineveh followed Ashur, the capital of Assyria, and it moved around um, to other locations near Nineveh, as we've seen the history of it. And Assyria was named after the chief god of Ashur, the god of war. Brutal people. The first Assyrian Empire gained its independence from Babylon sometime before 1500 B.C. But this was before Babylon, the greater Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Um, it began with Ashur Abilet, the first in 1363 to 1328 B.C. And then it ended with Ada Nirari, um, the third, from 809 to 782 B.C., but the second, um, the second empire of Assyria is the one that is, is most important to us because that's the one that the Bible speaks about here. And so that began with Tilgath-Pileser. Around 745 to 727 B.C., he invaded Syria, just north of Israel, in 734 it went on to Shalmaneser, Sargon III, to Sennacherib, to Esarhaddon, to Ashurbanipal in 669 to 626. And he took Babylon uh, from his brother, Samasumarikin, in 648. And then he's the one that took Manasseh captive to Babylon. Okay, remember Manasseh was one of the most evil kings. He was born, he was the son of Hezekiah. We'll get to him a little bit more at the end. So Assyria's empire began to disintegrate around 626 B.C., and then it was ultimately destroyed in 612 B.C. The records of this event are preserved in the Babylonian cylinders in the British Museum. Very detailed in terms of the people, the nation, the city, the atrocities, everything else. Much detail. Now, and they corroborate exactly what the scriptures declare. Now, the prophet Nahum, notice at the end of verse 9 and 10, reveal the confirmation of Nineveh ceasing to exist. Every verse, he hits it from every angle. The blow God would strike at Nineveh would finalize its ruins. Listen to the words. He will make an utter end of it. The it refers to Nineveh. Um, Alexander the Great, when he marched through the area, he found no trace of Nineveh. That was 331 B.C. 
the destruction of Nineveh was so complete that even a little bit over after 2,000 years, uh, it was considered to be a myth, a legend. The Bible was wrong until the discovery of its excavations in 1842 by Lazard and Boda. And God does this sometimes. He gets archaeologists go out to the Hittite dynasty, all this different stuff, and he proves the scholars to be wrong. The affirmation, notice there at the end, at, in verse 9, of the sudden and final destruction is stated clearly. Affliction will rise up, uh, will not rise up a second time. In other words, there would no, be no need for God to pass through a second wipe, a second uh, um, destruction. This was the final one. He said the kind of the same thing to Judah in Second Kings twenty one thirteen. He says, "And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plum plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as a, a, a wipes a dish. Listen, wiping it and turning it upside down. You have food on a little bit. You turn it on. You go. Nothing left on it. What a vivid description. One wipe." God didn't have to go through it twice. The nations of, at the return of Jesus will not avail or avert their judgment. Jeremiah 10, 10, Malachi 2, 2, Revelation 19. He will utterly destroy them. Notice the illustration in verse 10 is vivid to affirm the prophetic destruction to come. God likes Nineveh as worthless character as entangled thorns, dead, dry, and destructed to themselves and others, fit only to be burned by the fire. He's already, he's going to declare in chapter 315, there the fire will devour you. Judgment. Notice God likened their condition also as drunken, like drunkards. In other words, helpless. You know, a drunk guy thinks he can really beat you up. He can't even stand up. He's helpless. You just step aside, push him. You're going to go down to the ground. It's this false confidence. In their arrogant pride and overconfidence, they believe the city can never be taken by the Medes, the Babylonians, and the Scythians. So they engage in drunken feasts, much like Belshazzar in Daniel 5, right? Until you saw the writing, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. You've been waiting the balances. You've been found wanting, and you're dead tonight. So arrogant. Oh, they'll never get in this city. I'm penetrable. No one can get through these walls. When you're dealing with God, the possibilities are open-ended. <laughs> the repetition is for emphasis on the certainty of the prophetic judgment to come. They shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. At the present time, they saw themselves as fierce, intimidating. No one could overcome them. Yet God, through the prophet Nahum here, portrays them in their true condition, stubble ready for fire. There are people walking around who are healthy. They look healthy, they fit, they eat, they exercise this and that, but they have cancer, don't know it. God sees our true condition. We get caught up in our self-centeredness, our own abilities. 
Look at verse 11. The prophet Nahum revealed the identification of the leading culprit. The references to the one coming from Assyria. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord. That's never good. Nahum, by the words, come from you, is referring to Sennacherib. Sennacherib, as you know, in 704 to 681, conquered the land of, of Israel, but not the southern kingdom of Judah. And he destroyed Babylon before it became the empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Hezekiah had rebelled against king of Assyria. And so he stopped paying tribute to him in 1 Kings 18.7. Hezekiah was a good king. He was trusting Yahweh. And he had taken down many of the idolatrous sites. He set a great reform, but it was superficial. The people were so far gone. I look to our nation. I pray that God be merciful in this election, but I fear lest we're too far gone. Nahum, by the phrase, plots evil against the Lord, stated the indictment of guilt. The word plot is the same word as conspiring, verse 9, to plan, devise directly against God. I look at our nation. I look at our leaders. I look at our educators who are against God in every way. You know who are the number one hirees in the nation? Our universities. Is it any wonder that the universities and public education is the Trojan horse of the destruction of America? They control everything. Indoctrination. The word evil means a person of bad thought, deeds, and actions. It's against the Lord. We've denied our founding fathers. We've denied our Constitution. We've denied our Bill of Rights. We've denied our monuments in Washington. We deny what's printed in our money. We've asked God to bow out of our nation. I think he's taken us up on it. Notice the reference involves the second person, a wicked counselor. The wicked... Uh, here is worthless counselor, probably reference to Rabshakeh. If you remember, he was sent by Sennacherib to speak to the men on the wall in Jerusalem, challenging them um, to give up, surrender, blaspheming Yahweh in 2 Kings 18 and Isaiah 36. Why are you guys trusting Hezekiah? Don't let him deceive you. You know, he's taking down all these high places, all these worship centers of, of Yahweh. They had identified the pagan practices with Yahweh because Israel has syncretized them and mixed them in. But Hezekiah was trusting God. That's why he took down the idolatry. But the pagans had associated the worship of idols with God now. His rationale was that Hezekiah had removed the true worship of Yahweh, wrong. Today, there's such syncretism within the emergent church and mixing all this stuff that's so unbiblical. And so the pagans are associating the worship of, the, of Jesus and, and Bible doctrine with things that are not biblical. The description of Rabshakeh focuses on this person and character. Wicked, counselor, worthless, good for nothing, unprofitable. God, through Isaiah, said not an arrow would be shot. No Assyrian would enter the city, and he sent out an angel, one angel, and killed 185,000 Assyrians. 
frontline troops. Isaiah 37, 2 Chronicles 32. When Sennacherib returned to Nineveh, his sons killed him by the sword as he was worshiping the house of Nishrach, his god. 2 Kings 19.37. It's also in Chronicles. It's also in Isaiah 37. God records all these things. You can put them side by side. No contradictions. Supplements to give you a bigger picture. You guys remember Balaam. He was destroyed because he trusted in his clever devices against God. He knew he couldn't curse Israel, but he gave the advice of sending the young virgins in to show them how to worship their gods and that God would destroy Israel themselves. Well, God, God took care of Balaam. You think yourself clever to be able to outwit God? That you're greater than him? Hmm. The number of people who have thought they could outsmart God in view of their sin and ungodliness is not a few. The very first one, though he wasn't a man, was the angel Lucifer, son of the morning. But he was mistaken. You find his record in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Second to God. And then, and yet... He led a third of the angels away. He, he, number two was not enough. He wanted to be number one. Listen to Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created till iniquity was found in you. Underline that. Never forget it. If you believe that you're evil because of your father, your mother, your background, the environment, you're absolutely unbiblical. Satan was in heaven. Holy perfection until iniquity is found in you. The problem's in me. Yes, the facility may encourage you, may lean you, but you are the problem, not the environment. Make that very clear. Otherwise, you have to say Satan was in a dysfunctional heaven. I don't think so. The first man, Adam, thought he could escape the warnings of death given to him by God. He was wrong. Genesis 3, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and the tree dissolved to make one wise, she took him of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then their eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Genesis 3, 6-7. They were wrong. You ever made a decision and you thought you had it all wired and all of a sudden you crossed that line of no return and you said, man, why did I do that? The wisest man in the world, Solomon, thought to escape the perils of the warnings of God that he could mess with sin but he couldn't handle it, he couldn't control it. And he was destroyed. First Kings 11, 1 and 2 says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of Moab, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations from whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to them in love. If he's the wisest man, he had the greatest capacity to be the stupidest man when he didn't yield to God. God has given the man a very merciful way to confirm that he doesn't live forever. 
We start as infants depending on our parents. And we grow as children responsible and accountable to parents, to teachers, and to our peers. We live as adults fully responsible and accountable for our words, our deeds, and our sins to man and ultimately to God. We come into old age knowing soon that we will not exist in this world. Whether we believe in God or not, it doesn't matter. We will face our judge face to face. Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. God gives us a certain amount of time. I did a funeral yesterday for Nancy's uh, father. And the place was packed out, sharing the word of God, just ministering to them. I told them, funerals are not for the dead, they're for the living. Lest you perish without Christ. I got done. A Jewish man came up to me. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm Hebrew. I want to tell you that you challenged me with the things that you said about Jesus. I've gone through Hebrew school. I know Hebrew. I've never heard these things. I say, well, if you're Jewish, then Jesus is your Messiah. He's the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He's the one that cried out, My God, my God, why has he forsaken me? In Psalm 22, he's the one, the child and the son who's been given in Isaiah 7.14. A virgin should bear a son. He's the one who bore the iniquity of your sin in Isaiah 53. I said, he's your Messiah. He says, you've challenged me. I'm going to look into it. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. The power of God's word. But it's not in us. It's in the word of God. We dare to think we can get away if we disobey it. We can't. God has given the man all these things. Now the degree of punishment for every person depends on the degree of evil. And the measure of light they have received. To the unbeliever there will be degrees of punishment according to their sins. Listen to Revelation 20 verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So, according to what we do, the degree, there's going to be different degrees of punishment. You as a parent, punish your child. If he spills some water after you told him not to, in a certain way. But then, if he disobeys you and he crashes a car after because he's drunk, the punishment is more severe, Right? So if we have different degrees of punishment, let's give God a break. He's absolutely epitome of holiness, all right? The believer will have degrees of loss and reward. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hair, stubble, each one's work will become clear. For that day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's works, what sort it is. If each man's gifts, which has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. The motive of the heart, First Corinthians 4, 5. So God's not interested in how much I do or what I do, but why did I do it? What was my motivation? Was it for the glory of God, the love of God, the love of people, or for me? That's the motive. To the one receiving the light of the gospel and did not abide in it, he will be judged with a severe punishment. Listen carefully. You won't hear that in many churches. Listen. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, that's the non-believer, 
yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. To whom much less has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Luke twelve forty seven through 48. This is the, the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of a serious, clever plans. It's a warning to each one of us. Secondly, you have the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of a serious confidence strength. Here's the problem through life. We're self-sufficient. We're told how good we are today. Finish the sentence. Good for nothing. Except sin. I'm a great sinner. It's been 42 years. You want to go sin? I'm ready. I haven't forgotten. Notice in verse 12. The prophet Nahum revealed God would destroy the Assyrian and Nineveh in spite of the security and multitudes. The revelation of this future event was by divine authority. Here again, once again, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. The man Nahum was merely the, the information delivery. That's it. He's the channel. Like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, like many of the others, the revelation of this future event, notice, would not be hindered by human advantages or proficiencies or adequacies or whatever it may be you fill in the blank the phrase though they are saved refers to their false confidence of this tremendous city of Nineveh invincible unconquerable now when you're considering a man an army you can assess it that way when God is the one attacking you you're dead You know, Nineveh had his proper city, a formidable size, three days' journey, suburbs around it, four of them, uh, making it 60 miles around. The walls, 150 feet high, wide enough for three chariots abreast. The walls were fortified with 50 towers, um, 200 feet high. Uh, the river kosher, there was sloughs, its gates, its moles, all this stuff that's just incredible. But the Lord has already told us in chapter 1, verse 3, and he'll tell us again in, in verse 6, that he uses nature to destroy things sometimes through judgment. And so he's in control. He would use the Tigris River to wash out the entire wall. So God has means that we have no idea about. The phrase, likewise, many refers to the large population. Numbers. The Muslim community is, is arrogantly confident because their plan is invasion by immigration for occupation to occupy the land and take it over. Nine to one, they outnumber us. Every nation in the world is under population gain to maintain the civilization's culture. America is the only one that still has the ability to do that. Every nation is under population gain control it or regaining its population. Nine to one, they outnumber us. People feel strong, confident numbers, see? One person would never do something he'll do with three or four others. You become cowardly, but in a massive group. The population of Nineveh, remember, 120,000 infants didn't know the right hand from their left hand in Jonah 4, 10. 
maybe about a million then, maybe about two million here. So whatever it may be, it's a lot of them that are depending on that. The proclamation notices that regardless of the two factors, God would destroy Nineveh. Listen to the words. Yet in this manner, they will be cut down when he passes through. God is not intimidated by men. The instrument of God would be the Medes, the Chaldeans, the Scythians. Notice in verse 12 at the end there, in 13, the prophet Nahum revealed that though God had used Assyria to chasten Judah, he would now relieve her by destroying Nineveh. God took full responsibility for having disciplined Judah. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, the end of verse 12 says. The pronoun you refers to Judah. The southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already gone into captivity, 722. Sennacherib came up against and fortified the city of Judah, took them in the 14th year of Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, 13. 701 B.C., Hezekiah began to reign. Or he didn't begin, but 701 is when Sennacherib came. And Hezekiah reigned from 716 to 687. And Sennacherib took 46 cities, according to the Assyrian records, in the Philistine cities of Ashkelon and Ekron. So Hezekiah was like a bird caged up in Jerusalem, couldn't go in and out. This is the oppression of Assyria at this time. Hezekiah sent messengers to um, Lachish, acknowledging his wrong, and he offered to pay tribute to Sennacherib. And Sennacherib ordered him to pay 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. You find that in 2 Kings 18, 14. So nations would oppress them, keep them under tribute. They would raid their, their grain and all that and keep oppress them and keep them under. That's the, what nations have always done. It does it today too. No different. Hezekiah took all the silver of the house of the Lord, the treasury house, as well as stripping the gold from the doors of the temple, the pillars that he had overlaid, and he gave them to the king of Assyria. 2 Kings 18, 15 and 16 says, the nation is... Bankrupt. I look at what was happened to America. In the first year of the administration of Obama, as one third of the nation's wealth went out. Got to spread the wealth, right? They say if you're wealthy, it's theft. Well, what do you call wealth distribution? Double theft. Nobody worked for it. So if you're a hard worker, you've got to. You've got to support the lazy people. Wow. I'm amazed at the millennials that are going for the socialist, communist philosophy. Amazing to me. Even some Christians. Thinking Jesus taught the same thing. Mistakenly, of course. Notice the promise, I will afflict you no more. As he had in the past. God had used Assyria to take the northern kingdom, as I said, captive in 2 Kings chapter 17, 1 through 6. And the records of Assyria say that Shalmaneser began the siege but died shortly after the conquest. So Sargon completed it. And many people try to make a contradiction, but it isn't. If you look at the annals and you look at the history, it tells you clearly what happened. Shalmaneser reigned after that. Um, uh, and, and then you have Sennacherib, then you have Esarhaddon, then you have Ashurbanipal, and he's the one that um, took Manasseh captive to Babylon. 
Uh, Ammon reigned next for two years and he was killed by his servants. Then you have Josiah that we'll look at that followed. He was a good king. He reigned for about 31 years from 640 to 609 B.C. And led a spiritual reform after Helkiah found the book of the law and he cleansed the temple and all. And that's in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 and 36. And so all these things are going on as Nahum is, 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 um, is, is prophesying. God is working these things through. Assyria had been the rod of God's anger, uh, we're told in Isaiah 10.5. So all these Assyrian kings oppressed, took the north captive and oppressed the south. Until the 6.12 when they were destroyed. Now, God would end the long oppression of Assyria. For now I will break off <clears throat> his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The metaphor is that of plowing with an ox. For now I will break the yoke from you, referring to the oppressive bondage of Assyria. Assyria had displaced the people of Israel, as you know. They would take a community and then spread them in other places in Babylon, different places, and they would split families and everything else to dispirit them so they wouldn't rebel. They would lose their language, their identity. They would be absorbed into other nations. And then he left some Jews in Samaria and, brought, and did the same thing with other captives from Babylon, put them over here. Now, the Babylon I'm talking about is the one before Nebuchadnezzar. And so the people that were born in Samaria were called half-breeds, Samarians, Samaritans, half-Jew, half-Gentile. It's a very effective way of dispiriting your enemies and to subdue any rebellion. So the metaphor here is very, very, very vivid. In 612 again, Nineveh falls. God fulfills his word because he is God of jealousy, as we've seen. And the Lord avenges, and the Lord avenges in his fury as the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves uh, wrath for his enemies, chapter 1, verse 2 told us. So no one can escape God. God is patient. God is very uh, um, exact in his plans. He's not Quick to judge. He, he doesn't jump the gun or anything. But then he says, And burst your bonds apart, referring to Judah being free from the oppression of Syria. But during all this time, in 612 it falls, but in 606, only six years later, they go captive to Babylon. So it's only a little window time, but it's in this little window time that God gets his stuff fulfilled. What are the odds of all that? So though Nineveh would fall in 612, Judah would be relieved for only a little bit, but then taken captive to Babylon. Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to aid the king of Assyria at the river Euphrates in 608, and Josiah went. A great king, Jeremiah, lamented his death, and he disobeyed the Lord, and he got killed at Megiddo. Then in 605, the battle of Carchemish, the army of Assyria was totally destroyed. So 612, Nineveh destroyed. 606, the first captivity. Then 596 and 586, and Israel's in Babylon for 70 years. In that little window of time, God fulfilled this. Do you realize the impossibility of all this? You're going through some difficult times. Start doubting God. Or worse yet, you start wanting to take hold of your life. 
and you think you can do a better job, have somebody slap you. Don't go there. You remember Samson. Samson was destroyed because he trusted in his own strength. I will go out as other times. Yet he did not know the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. Hmm. If I read my Bible history correctly, it is filled with the record of nations being devastated and destroyed by God through the hand of rising nations. What would lead me to believe that God has not done this in the recent past and is continuing to do it now as he will do it through the tribulation and great tribulation? If I know my Bible, God's active. Without any doubt, God was involved in the conflict and outcome of World War I, the Great War, which was to end all wars. Over 50 nations were involved. God used his nations to judge of the nations. World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan. No different. Guaranteed you. Because I know my Bible. I do not mean to say that God is the one responsible for the war. Or any war. Or the evil that men do. But that God, knowing the evil heart of the nations and the national leaders of envy and greed for power and wealth, judges nations by other nations. Are we clear on that? Absolutely. Listen to um, Nebuchadnezzar after he learned his hard lesson. He became a beast for some seasons. Uh, Daniel 4, 34-35 says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Darius also made such a confession in Daniel 6, 25 through 26. To all peoples, nations, plural, and the languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, the steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. What is it that our nation does not understand having those things printed on our constitution? Bill of Rights, monuments, Federalist Papers, that the God of all those documents refers to the God of the Bible, the Judeo-Christian God. And we're denying it. Some men and women are so confident in their power of influence and their wealth that their personal security is thought to be untouchable. Nothing can happen to me. Yet God has brought many of those individuals or such individuals to their knees throughout life and history. Sometimes God allows them to fall on their illness and great devastation through natural causes or direct judgment. And there's nothing they can do. All their wealth, all their fame, all their position, power means nothing. 
Listen to Matthew 16, 26. For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. But God says to him, Fool, does not your soul is required of you? Then whose will these things be which you have provided? I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You leave everything behind. This is the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of their confidence strength. Nothing impossible for God. Notice third and last, the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of a serious controlling existence. Verse 14, the prophet Nahum proclaims the extinction of the nation of Assyria again. The authority is divine authority. The Lord has given a command concerning you, the covenant God of Israel. Once again, this is the ninth time in this first chapter, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. He's the one. The declaration is a command. It's really a charge. The persecuting attorney or prosecuting attorney as well as persecuting and the judge is God. No one else. The verdict is guilty and sentence is to fall under righteous justice. Absolutely perfect. Notice the Assyrians would cease to exist as an identifiable nation. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Wow. Perpetuated means reputation, fame, glory. When you hear a person's name behind a ministry all the time, John Smith's ministry, this is a John Smith hour or this and that, get away from it. Let it be a ministry for the glory of God. Don't write your name over everything. God help us. The Assyrians, as a world power, had run its course, it would be no more. The fear, intimidation, and horror that melted the hearts of men would no longer exist. The phrase no longer means literally to not be sown. It would cease. Their numbers would diminish. Their influence and impact would be absorbed into other nations. The verdict was against their God's notice. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images, the molded images. The word carved there refers to the engraving or sculpture, be it wood or stone. You shape it with a tool, with your hands. The word molding has a reference to liquefied pouring into molds or, or, or casts of gold, silver, bronze. These words were a direct attack on the god and the goddess of war, Asher and Ashtar. The rest of the Assyrian deities also, of Marduk or Bel, which also was an attack on the king who depended on them. Because when they went to war, they went to war on behalf of the strength of their gods to demonstrate to the nation that their gods were greater. The flooding of the Tigris washed away the temple of Nabu and others. Yet Nahum boldly proclaimed the message of God gave him in spite of the potential threat 
and danger to his own life. God always has his Jeremiah's. He always has his faithful. We're going to proclaim God's word regardless. Notice their judgment was directly by the hand of God. I will dig your grave for you are vile. A pronoun I refers to Yahweh. God. The reference to your grave refers to their death as a nation, a people. The reason is that they were vile. It means to be swift, of little account, contemptible. And then the prophet Nahum proclaimed the comfort of the nation of Judah at hearing the judgment. Verse 15. Now verse 15 in the Hebrew text is verse 1 of chapter 2. And sometimes they tie verse 3 to it. But I just leave it flow where it goes. You'll find this in commentaries when you read them, critical commentaries. Now, notice the proclamation is that the news of a serious destruction would comfort Judah. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tithings, who proclaims peace. Nahum is quoted in Isaiah 52, 7. The text is used by Paul in Romans 10, 15, for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for Jew and Gentile in Christ Jesus through the New Age, through the New Testament. Isaiah uses it for the second coming in his context for the salvation of the remnant of the Jew. So the verse is interpreted for the first and the second coming. And here he uses it for the good news that's going to be for Judah when Assyria is destroyed. So there's a threefold application to this Isaiah um, 52.7. Now, the celebration, notice, would carry out their feasts without fear. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows. Now, even though this would be fulfilled by Josiah, you have to keep in mind that Nahum is prophesying at the, and during the time of the reign of the most wicked king of Judah, Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. And he fulfills some of this, though the prophecy is not towards him, but he did fulfill it. Let me give you some of the stuff. Second Kings uh, 21 and Second Chronicles 33 says that Manasseh seduced Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, offering his sons to Molech. He put them on the fire, burned them. Practicing witchcraft, consulting spiritists, mediums, Asherah, provoking God to anger, taking captive the Babylon by the king of Assyria with hooks, bond with, fetter, with bronze fetters. So the king of Assyria took him. I mean, just probably the interrogation was probably brutal. And yet God so merciful. As Manasseh is there in jail, the most wicked king, and when he was under affliction, and of course under the hand of Ashurbanipal, it says in Second Chronicles 33, 12 and 13, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of, the father, of his fathers and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. Can you believe that? So if you think you've gone too far, I don't think you're more evil than Manasseh. Have you sacrificed your child on fire? By the way, the Scythians that are partly going to be used by God to destroy Syria, the Scythians used to take their captive skulls, boil them, de-skin them, and use them for drinking goblets. Jesus says, you're a Scythian, you can be saved. God forgives this king, brings him back to Jerusalem. 
When he returned to Jerusalem, Manasseh began building the projects in the city and elsewhere in Judah, removing the idols, the altars, and the temple, all the, all the stuff that was contaminated there in Second Chronicles 33. He also reco- uh, repaired the altar of the Lord. He made sacrifices there of offerings and thanksgiving. He commanded Judah to um, serve the Lord, God of Israel. And, um, but the reform was half-hearted already. It was just far gone. The, um, the nation was just um, um, incredibly gone. And so the celebration of the prophecy notice declared by Nahum regarding their feasts and vows was really fulfilled through Josiah. And this you see in Second Kings in um, chapter 22 and 23, and you can cross-reference with Second Chronicles 34 to 35. They're in both places. Josiah began to reign at eight years old. At 26, he commanded Shaphan the scribe to go to Hilkiah to count the money in, in the temple so they can make repairs there in Second Kings 22 also. And Shaphan come, came back and confirmed the obedience of the command. But he told him that Hilkiah, while he was doing this, he found the book of the law. And so then he said, well, go to the prophetess Helda and inquire of God. And God said, I'm going to destroy Judah. You've disobeyed me, but because you have humbled yourself, Josiah, I will not do it in your lifetime. Second Kings 22, 8 through 20. Merciful God. Now he's doing all this in all this little window time. Josiah then gathered all the people in the temple and he read the book in Second Kings 23. And he commanded to cleanse the temple. The articles of Baal, Asherah, were taken and burned the valley of Hinnom. He removed the images, the perverted persons, the sodomites. He destroyed the high places on Mount of Olives of Chemosh and Ashtoreth that Solomon had built there. He desecrated the false prophets' tombs. He killed the false priests. He removed mediums, mediums, spirits. And he had the greatest celebration of the Passover like no other in 2 Kings 23, 4-24. The fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy. What are the chances of that? <laughs> Incredible. So the continuation was sure, or the confirmation here was sure about the destruction of Nineveh. Listen to the words. For the wicked one shall no more pass through. He is utterly cut off. The wicked one, again, reference to the Assyrian Empire and their king. The finality is indicated by the phrase shall no more pass through. The end of the nation's existence, as stated, is utterly cut off. Over and over and over again, from every angle, he's saying that the prophecy about the king and his capital came about. They were the sole superpower, the zenith of a serious power and glory when he made this announcement. You remember Jeremiah did the same thing. He sent a letter and had the, the, the messenger declare the destruction of Babylon. Then when he was finished, he cast... The, 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 the prophecy tied around the stone into the Euphrates River, so Babylon. Babylon was the, the, just started. They were on top. And he prophesied the destruction before they just got on top. People laugh at things like that because God tells the end from the beginning. Remember the, uh, the general that said, oh, that Elijah, there was a famine in the land. Elisha and, and, and they were selling a, a donkey's head for 600 pieces of silver. 
And then he prophesied that in the next day they would sell flour for barely any money at the gate. He said, oh, if God opened the windows of heaven, could such a thing be? He says, you will see it, but you will not taste it. And when they opened the gates, they trampled and killed him. What's impossible for God? Absolutely nothing. He boldly proclaimed the message when it wasn't popular. He boldly proclaimed the message even as people were saying, ah, you're crazy, Nahum, this can't happen. There's no way. Egypt successfully revolted at the closing years of Asher, Baal, and Paul, 681 to 626 B.C. And the Medes became powerful and dangerous foe. The Scythians swept down from the distant north, spreading desolation through the wide and fertile Mesopotamia plains. And these um, did not attack Nineveh, but they robbed of, of much of its prestige. And at the death of the king of Assyria, Herodotus, the historian, tells that the Medes attempted to assault Nineveh, but were obliged to abandon the attempt because they were summoned back to defend their own homes. The Medes, 18 years later, about 614 B.C., took and attacked the major Assyrian city of Asher and Napopolazar, made an alliance with their king. Together, the Medes, the Chaldeans, and the Scythians continued the attack, and Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. God's at work, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> He's not biting his nails. He's on the throne. You know, the lifespan of nations differ, but the average is 200 years. My daughter was a bicentennial baby. 1976, we were 200 years old. Look at our nation. The modern world scene is working to revive the Roman Empire, the ten toes of iron and clay, as the Treaty of Rome on March 25, 1957. Six European nations began a new chapter in history. The European econ economic community was born, called the common market, and 12 years later they increased to nine. Britain and other European nations initially declined to join the common market and established the weaker European Free Trade Association, the EFTA, in 1960, an alternative. But the early 1960s, the common market nations showed signs of economic growth. So the British, or Britain, changed their mind. They became its close ties with the United States. However, France President Charles de Gaulle twice vetoed Britain's admission and British our Britain did not join the EC until January of 1973. When Ireland and Denmark also became EC members, Greece joined in 1981, Portugal and Spain in 1986, and the former East Germans part of the unifying Germany in 1990. In early 1990s, the European community became the basis for the European Union, the EU, which was established in 1993, following ratification of the uh, Maastricht Treaty. The treaty called for strengthening European Parliament and the creation of a central European bank and common currency and a common defense policy. In addition, a single European common market uh, member states would also participate um, in a large common market called the European um, economic area. Austria, Finland, Swindland became members of the EU in 1995. Early 2007, there were 27 members, 
states in total. Further growth was expected. But at the end, it will end up in ten, as Daniel tells us. Ten nations, and so the book of Revelation. Listen carefully, Proverbs 8.15. It says, By me kings reign, and rulers decree justice. Proverbs 8.15. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of waters. He turns it wherever he wishes. Wow. The church is not the kingdom, ladies and gentlemen, but part of the kingdom. We will not establish the kingdom. Jesus will establish the kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him. Revelation 5.10 says, And he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. We are looking for a spiritual kingdom. Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. Everything is lining up for the one world government, one world currency, Everybody's going to be moved into one world model. And we are seeing it before our eyes. Are you ready? Are you aware of how accurate the Bible is? No man knows the day or the hour, so don't let anybody give you a date. Just be ready. Your redemption draws nigh. So this is the futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of a serious long existence. Every nation comes to an end, just like every person. And so the prophet Nahum revealed the absolute certainty of the execution of God's judgment over Assyria through these three truths. The futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of Assyria's clever plans. Clever plans. They don't work with God. The futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of Assyria's confidence, strength. How strong do you think you are? More than God? The futility of escaping God's judgment in spite of a serious controlling existence. You think you're going to live forever? You won't even be able to keep your skin tight forever. You start like a grape and you end up like a raisin. What clear warning to every generation that reads the Bible. It would be foolish to be against God. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for this morning. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. If you don't know him, right where you sit, maybe over the internet, maybe you're listening to the radio, This is your prayer of repentance to ask Christ to forgive you of your sins that he might make you his child. And by grace through faith, he will do that right now where you sit. You can repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.